Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRaga Personal Finance, episode 104. And in this episode, we'll discuss how indexes are actually weighted. And what does it mean? What types of weightings can be applied? If you have a topic suggestion, shoot me a Facebook message and I'll aim to discuss it in one of the upcoming episodes. More recently, I was a guest on the Aussie Money Man YouTube channel and was interviewed by Nicholas. His channel is video-based and discusses financial concepts using an evidence-based format. If you're interested, plug into his YouTube channel. Meanwhile, if you want me to be a guest on your channel, shout out via Facebook and I'll definitely consider it. I'm also happy to do speaking engagements if you want me to speak at your business. If you're new to the channel, my aim is threefold. The first aim is to be educated. Be educated about finances. Improving financial literacy is one of the main aims of this podcast channel. With that, you become empowered. Empowerment with knowledge means that you can speak to your credentialed financial advisor, lawyer, accountant about your personal financial situation at a level which you can understand it. And the third thing is to be entertained. Now, just a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions you want to make after listening to one of my episodes to your appropriate qualified credentialed advisors. But if you're stuck on what to do in terms of broad principles, here are some simple steps to get you in the right track when it comes to saving, investing, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is pay yourself first. Take 20% of your after-tax money and put it aside. That is your money never to be touched ever again. Step two is invest that money, ideally into something that you understand or want to understand. For me, I understand the stock market and index funds, so I invest in index funds. Step three is reinvest dividends. The power of compounding is phenomenal. Step four is do it for the long term. Now, I'm not talking five, 10 or even 15 years. I'm talking minimum 20, 30, if not 40 plus years. Of course, the longer you do it, the better it is for you. And step five, my favorite, is wherever possible, try and automate these steps forever. With more automation, the less chances you'll forget and the more chances that you'll stick to the financial plan. Now, if you did all these five steps and you did it consistently, you're more likely to have more money than you'll ever need. Now, remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life better, but most importantly, to make the lives of people around you a lot better. Now, before we go to the main topic, I had a question recently from a newly crowned doctor. Let's call them intern about their future specialty. Hi, Dev. I've been listening to your podcast for a long time and they are absolutely amazing. I found you through White Coat Investor when you were a guest. 
I, however, am quite confused on what I should do with my choice of specialty and where I should be going in the future to maximise income. Thank you very much for that question, um, intern, and congratulations once again on completing your medical school. Um, that is a very good question. Um, I think choosing a specialty um, is a very important career decision for all the doctors out there. And um, But choosing a specialty just for income is quite risky, in my humble opinion. You need to do something that you enjoy, and you need to remember that you need to enjoy it for the rest of your life, potentially. And in medicine, changing careers or specialties is actually very, very difficult. So you need to choose it very wisely. I see a lot of um, examples where doctors spend a considerable amount of time trying to get selected into a particular specialty and eventually switch to another specialty. Um, and that time um, spent trying to get into a specialty is opportunity cost, um, career-wise, but also with their finances. Now, you may end up hating your specialty if you just did it for the income. So um, choosing it based on just average income is, again, quite risky. Having said this, um, here are some general principles I think that um, junior doctors should consider when choosing their specific specialty, um, in addition to their personal interest, of course. The first thing is you need to think about the hours that you need to put in in certain specialties. There are some specialties where the hours are significantly more than others, so you need to choose wisely. Um, you know, not everyone can do every specialty. Uh, some doctors are not destined for some specialties. Uh, but having said that, if you put your mind to it, if you work hard, then I don't see any reason why you couldn't train in a specialty of your liking. Um, you need to also consider training time. Some specialties have a shorter training time than other specialties, so that's important. So if you think that a long training time for you is not right, then you know choosing you know something like a subspecialty surgical um, specialty might not be an option for you. But again, that is just one factor. You can't just choose a specialty just based on training time. But it is an important thing to consider. You need to also consider the entrance barriers. Um, some specialties are easier to get into than other specialties. And of course, exit barriers, which means that some specialties have exit exams, other specialties may not have exit exams, and some specialties, once you exit, you really have to do what's called a fellowship year or two. So that's important to be um, uh, considering as well. And of course, when it comes to exams and when it comes to training, it's not cheap. Some training specialties are quite expensive, so you need to think about costs of training. Um, some colleges do charge you yearly fees, training fees, and have mandatory courses. And of course, other colleges also charge you, you know, quite expensive examination fees when it comes to part one and part two exams, particularly when it comes to fellowship exams. So again, that includes um, in something called opportunity costs. And I've discussed this in previous episodes if you're interested in listening in that. Um, you need to think about a specialty, whether you want to be a proceduralist versus a non-proceduralist or maybe a bit of a hybrid. Um, you need to th think about indemnity costs. Some specialties um, have much higher indemnity costs, for example, obstetrics, um, compared to non-procedural 
um, specialties, so that's important to consider. And of course, if you're thinking about family life, children, um, planning for family, etc., that that may come into um, your decision making. Um, and of course, in terms of training, some specialties uh, you're expected to move around quite a lot. Uh, this is uh, more common in surgical specialties than medical specialties and uh, general practice specialties. Um, so you need to think about, are you having to move between hospital networks? Are you having to move between states? Um, and in some instances, um, I've heard of candidates having to move countries. So remember, it's on Australia, New Zealand, specialty sub, uh, subgroup. So you may be asked to go to New Zealand. So all of that takes a toll on your personal life, your professional life and your family life. So you need to consider all of these factors. And of course, income is one of those factors. Um, so choose wisely and choose well. And the most importantly, don't make a hasty decision. I think it's important to take your time in deciding your specialty of choice. Um, and of course, don't go into internship or residency with a predetermined specialty in mind. Try and have an open mind about it. You may find that some specialties you just absolutely hate and other specialties you absolutely love. And it may not be the specialty that you had a predetermined um, opinion about. So it's important to give it some time before you make that final decisions. And once again, congratulations and also good luck for your future training and future career. I have spoken to a few interns in the last week who've just started an internship in Australia and um, boy, oh boy, some of them are absolutely switched on um, from a financial perspective at least. Obviously, I haven't seen them in their clinical skills, but they're still learning. But certainly when it comes to money, uh, they're well ahead in their game in terms of setting up salary packaging, superannuation, index funds, ETF dollar cost averaging. Um, you know, they're way ahead of where I was when I was an intern. Um, and I think if you're listening to this, um, it is a very, very satisfying to be able to talk to some of you um, and see that you are well into your planning when it comes to your finances. If you set up your systems appropriately early in your career, then you're less likely to make mistakes later in your career when the income really does increase exponentially, hopefully anyway. Um, generally speaking, in terms of specialty selection, proceduralists make more than non-proceduralists. And generally speaking, uh, if you're in private practice, you tend to make more than you are in full-time public practice. Um, but whichever way you go, um, I think that even for doctors that have pretty stable high incomes, you need to have a side hustle. You need to have diversification of income. Um, that's absolute um, must. And that could be from passive investing and that could be from dividend income or teaching or whatever it is that you might do. You might have created a product. You might have had um, uh, an invention. You might be doing some uh, you know, businesses on the side. And that's completely good because I think you need to have a side hustle. You need to diversify your income. And the other concept that I want everyone to understand, particularly newly crowned interns, income does not equate to wealth. Um, so you've got to be very careful about having this mindset that you've just graduated in uh, medicine and therefore you're going to be a doctor, therefore you're going to be wealthy, that's far from the truth. Um, you could go very wrong with your money, so make sure you pay attention to it. And of course, the most important thing in your internship is learn and listen um, and also do the right thing and do the best that you can for your patients, 
your team, your fellow interns, your registrars, and your consultants, and of course, your hospital network. And generally, you know, you're part of the health system. So you're a very important part of the health system. So thank you very much for that very insightful question. Now to the main topic of indexes and how they're weighted. Now, before we do that, we need to understand what a stock market index is. Now, a stock market index is basically a measure of the stock market. It helps investors compare current performance and price levels and compare it to historical levels. And this is, you know, you can go to any Google and, you know, type in ASX 200 or 300 or S&P 500 and Google spits out a chart and that compares it to historical levels. It's an easy way to find out how the whole stock market is doing and an index fund or an ETF which tracks the index simply mimics this and this allows investors to participate in a very passive investing strategy and that's what I do. I just buy index funds. It's simple, effective, easy and cheap. And what they do is they buy units, which is kind of representative of the index which it tracks. Now, what are the various weights applied to indices? Um, So there are three main types of weights applied. I'm talking about indexes in general. The first and probably the most common is capitalization weighted or value weighted indices. The second one is called price weighted indices. And the third one is called unweighted index. Now, there are three other ones, um, which I won't be going into detail because the main ones are the three that I've just discussed. The other three minor types of weightings include factor weighting, volatility weighting, and minimum variance weighting. So let's do a deep dive into the main types of weightings applied. And the first one is market capitalization. What does it actually mean? Now, this is when the securities within a particular index are weighted according to their overall value. To calculate a firm's value, you need to look at the total outstanding shares in circulation and take into account what each share is priced at. The outstanding shares just means the shares owned by the individual shareholders, the institutional investors, or the people within the company that holding the stock. So let's use an example to highlight market capitalization. Now, suppose you have a company called XYZ where the share price is a dollar. The total number of outstanding shares, let's say, is 5 million. The total market capitalization of the company is $5 million. Now, you may have noticed in the media lately, they talk about Bitcoin. What is the market cap of Bitcoin? And they talk about, you know, $500 billion or whatever it was. Or they talk about Tesla. What is the market cap of Tesla when it entered the S&P 500? I think it's worth about 600 or $700 billion. What is the market cap of uh, Amazon or Apple, which is about $2 trillion, I think it is. So that's basically what we're talking about. Now, in this particular company, XYZ, which has a share price of a dollar, supposing if the share price now moves to $2, then the market cap becomes $10 million. In other words, it's doubled in value. So if an index is market cap weighted and contains a number of companies, the company with the highest market cap tends to be representing the higher proportion of the index. Conversely, the companies which have lower market caps are weighted lower in the index. So as you can see, if your company is worth 30% of the index, for example, then it represents 30% of that index. This creates a bit of a problem for people who want a bit more diversification. 
The irony being, one of the reasons index funds and ETFs are attractive is that they provide diversification. But sometimes it's veiled diversification with what's called market capitalization risk because inherently the companies that represent the top 50% of the index might actually only be a handful. So with market capitalization weighted indices, you risk the fact of achieving diversification in some respects, but also losing diversification in other respects. So is, for example, the S&P ASX 200 index, is that a market cap weighted index? And the answer is yes, it is. Uh, Same with the S&P 500 index in America and same with the NASDAQ 100. But the NASDAQ 100 is slightly different. It's actually called a a variation model called a modified capitalization weighted index, but it is still ultimately a market cap weighted index. So how does market cap indices work? Well, essentially, if a stock occupies a certain percentage of that particular index, then any movement of that said stock can have an impact on the movement of the index itself. Now, because index funds or ETFs track the said index, the prices will also be reflected for the index funds and ETFs if the index moves in positive territory or negative territory. In other words, the movement of the weighted stock has an impact on the movement of the index, and this is for positive or negative gains. So what is the advantage of the market cap weighted indices? Um, The advantage is that the large companies have the greatest impact on the index, which means the large companies also have the steady revenue and income, so they provide some stability to the index. Now, think about it like this. If you're pushing a trolley and it's going to take a fair bit of effort to push a larger, heavier trolley than it is compared to pushing a lighter, less heavier trolley. So if there's gale force winds, and those winds is basically an analogy for economic factors uh, which affect the company, like economic pressures, currency pressures, interest rate pressures, labour pressures, trade war pressures, etc., the smaller trolley is vulnerable to be tossed and turned over in that gale force wind, whilst the larger, heavier trolley may survive that. We've seen this in 2020, when even the worst pandemic, the highest unemployment rates ever, did not affect some of the big companies like Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, etc. Now, when it comes to the Australian market, this kind of happened with Virgin Australia during COVID, when there was lockdown, international travel was banned, interstate travel was also locked out. When it collapsed, that's Virgin Australia, people who owned Virgin Australia stock absolutely got killed in the market. They lost all their money. But the people who held ASX 200 didn't get affected much by Virgin collapses because it didn't make much of an in, uh, much of an effect on the index because the bigger companies like the banks, miners, tech stocks in Australia supported the index quite well. They didn't get affected much. So Virgin, even though went kind of bankrupt and got sold off to a private equity firm, their share price completely collapsed. The Virgin only occupied based on market cap, a small percentage of the ASX 200 index, and it didn't actually make a big difference to the index itself. Now, if Commonwealth Bank collapsed, that's a different story because that occupies a significant portion of the ASX 200 index. So that's the whole deal with market cap weighted index funds. It can be a great thing. Uh, Large companies can be protective, uh, but smaller companies can be very vulnerable. But at the same time, if the larger company fails, it can have a greater effect on the the actual index trajectory. 
So I guess this leads to what is the disadvantage of market cap weighted indices. Now, critics say that you're not really diversifying, and they're right. So if the larger companies have trouble with their businesses, the whole index takes a larger proportional hit. Uh, And the counter-argument is the larger companies are worth more, which means they have a larger outstanding share balance, which means more shareholders, which should mean they occupy more of the index. So it's a catch-22 situation. The other disadvantage is to push a larger trolley, remember, further, it takes a fair bit of effort. So larger companies have what we call less mobility in their share price movements. So this is why they're not really classified as growth companies. Smaller cap companies have more growth attached to them because they're still growing. They need to invent more products. They need to sell their products so their share price can move much, much more quickly higher, but also lower, making you more money or less money, depending on what company that you invest in. So a good example of a you know smaller market cap company is Afterpay, um, where it was worth about $2.95 back in 2017. And at the time of recording this episode, it's worth about 111 bucks. Whereas the large banks don't move as rapidly once they become large companies. So the disadvantage is that to Uh, push a large company share price up, the mobility is going to be quite low. It's going to be quite harder to do that. Now, let's use an example to understand market cap weighted indices. Let's say there is a market cap index, which I've just created with only three companies. uh, And let's make it very, very simple. Company one has 1,000 outstanding shares and each share price is valued at $1. So the market cap is $1,000. Company two is 300 outstanding shares. Each share price is valued at $10 a share and the market cap therefore becomes $3,000. And company three has 10,000 outstanding shares and each share price is valued at $0.05. Therefore, the market cap is $500. Now, notice despite company three having more outstanding shares than the other two companies, because its share price is only $0.05, its market cap is below the other two. This is important to understand. This means the index has a total market cap of the total value of company one, company two, and company three, uh, which is around $4,500. So $1,000 plus $3,000 plus $500, you add everything up and that gives you $4,500. That is the market cap of the index. So what is the weighting of each company in that index? Now, the weighting is basically, because remember, this is a market cap index, is basically the percentage impact each company has on the index. So company one is valued at $1,000 out of a total of $4,500, and that has an impact of 22%. Company two is valued at $3,000 out of $4,500, and that has an impact of 66%. And company three is valued at $500 out of $4,500, and that only has an impact of 11%. So in this case, notice that company two has a 66% impact on the index. Let's make this company the whiz-bang tech company of the future. And over one year, let's say its stock price now rises by double. Now the stock price, initially valued at $10 a share, is now doubled to $20 a share. Let's see how this affects the market cap index. The market cap now rises to $6,000 for this company. And the total market cap of the index now rises to $7,500 from $4,500. This means now its impact on the index is 80%. 80% of the index is practically represented by company two. 
Now, critics will now say this is why market cap defeats the purpose of diversification. In other words, if you invested $1,000 into this index, 80% of that money is represented by company two. This is not diversification at all. Furthermore, you may be contributing to the bubble of company two talk because if that bubble bursts and stock prices fall, it'll have a dramatic impact on the index because it represents 80% of it. Of course, I've only used three companies to create an index to illustrate a point. In reality, ASX 200 has 200 companies, ASX 300 has 300 companies, S&P 500 has 500 companies, but the larger companies still dominate these indices. So the pros are you have access to a wide range of companies. Larger, well-established companies have greater weighting on the index, which provides index stability. Smaller companies have less of an impact in the event of a catastrophic collapse, example, Virgin Australia. The cons are, as the stock price rises, it can have a disproportionate impact on the holdings, making it less diverse, particularly if that stock price rise occurs in a company that dominates the index already. And if the larger company's stock falls or fails, it has a major impact on the index. And market cap structures can contribute to stock market bubbles. So that is a summary of market cap weighted indices. Let's have a look at price weighted indices. Now, instead of taking into account market caps based on total outstanding shares, a price weighted index takes into account the price of the stock in proportion to the other stock prices in the index. So for example, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is an example of a price-weighted index. Nikkei 225 Index in Japan is also a price-weighted index. The index value is then determined by adding all the stock prices up and dividing it by the total number of stocks in the index. And a stock with a higher price has a greater influence on the index, whilst a stock with a lower price has a lesser influence. And that's price-weighted index. So let's use an example to highlight how a price-weighted index would affect an index. So using the same example previously, company one, two, and three, company one has a share price, remember, of a dollar, company two has a share price of $10, and company three has a share price of five cents. Let's assume they comprise of a price-weighted index. The total index value becomes a dollar plus 10 bucks plus five cents, which is $11.05, divided by the total number of companies, which is three. So the total index value becomes $3.68. Now suppose company one share price becomes $10 from $1, and company two share price becomes $20 from $10. Company two stock price move will have a greater impact when compared to company one's stock price movements so that technically company one share price moved 900% compared to company two share price, which only moved 100%. But the effect of this is that company two share price movements, even though it only moved 100%, it doubled, has a greater impact because it moved $10 as opposed to company one share price, which only moved $9. Now this is because in price weighted index, higher price stock movements have a greater impact on the overall direction of the index. The percentage rise does not affect it. So we're talking about absolute numbers. Now that's price weighted index. The last main type of index is called unweighted index. 
What is an unweighted index? Well, basically, this just means each stock within the index will have the same weighting. So the performance of one stock will not have much of an impact or any impact on the index as a whole. These types of indices are rare. For example, the S&P 500 unweighted index is a version of the S&P 500 market cap weighted index. So each of the stocks in the unweighted S&P 500 version represents around 0.2% of the index. That's just a straight mathematical calculation. Now, the advantage of an unweighted index is that what tends to happen with market weighted indices is that fund managers, which operate funds which track such indices, must buy more of the stocks that are rising in value or sell more of the stocks that are declining in value. They need to keep the balance based on the market weighting rules. But in unweighted indices, the fund manager sticks to equal allocations of the capital. In fact, this happened when Tesla entered the S&P 500, where fund managers had to rebalance their entire portfolio, start buying Tesla at significantly higher prices because it's now part of the S&P 500, and had to let go of some of their other companies that they held because that didn't make up much of the index at all. And Tesla kind of went in at a market valuation of about $600 billion or something like that. So does that mean that unweighted indices are better? Not really. I mean, there's no one best index weighting method. It really depends on the investor. If the investor wants to invest in large companies, but also have some exposure to smaller stocks, a market cap weighted index fund might be the go. They need to accept the risk the larger companies have more impact on the index based on their stock price movements. If an investor doesn't want this, then they may choose an unweighted index, where the investor is basically set amount and it gets split equally despite their share price or market capitalization. They're just interested if the stock pool is moving higher or lower, and it also provides greater exposure to smaller cap stocks. Now, I won't really go into detail about the other three, which is effective weighted indices, minimum variance weighted indices, or volatility weighted indices, because it's a bit too much of the nitty-gritty side. I just want to focus on the top three ways that indices are weighted. Uh, the vast majority of indices are either market cap value-weighted, price-weighted, or unweighted indices. Now, when index are created, is the number it starts from random? And the answer is no. But there is a method to the madness. This is where an index divisor comes into play. For example, for the Dow Jones, if you add up the price of all the stocks, it comes to a random number. But to make things manageable, they divide that total figure by an index divisor. So what is an index divisor? An index divisor is basically a standardization figure for a price-weighted index. The reason it exists is because when there are mergers or acquisitions or stock splits, it kind of stuffs up the price-weighted index a bit. Remember, when stock splits occur, the price of the stock decreases, but you get more shares due to the split. So the overall value of your share portfolio doesn't really change. So an index divisor makes it easier for people to track the value of an index over time. Is the index divisor always constant? And the answer is no. It may need to be changed if there are changes to the index, which affects its value. For example, companies enter or leaving the index, or if the company has a rights offer, repurchases offer of its own shares, or stock splits. The Dow Jones is an example of a price-weighted index, which uses an index divisor. Let's use an example to highlight the concept of an index divisor. At the time of recording this episode, the Dow sits at 30,140 points. But if you add up the prices of each stock, because remember it's price-weighted index, 
it only adds up to $4,582.90. That's US dollars. How does that work? Where do they get the 30,000 points from? If the price weighted index only comes to 4,582, where is the 30,000 points coming from? Well, it just makes it harder. Um, suppose one of the companies has a stock split and halved its stock price, it would affect the Dow Jones point system. So why isn't the Dow only 4,500 points? To avoid this, to make it a little bit easier, they invented the divisor to make it easier. The equation is quite simple. The Dow Jones Industrial Average Index Points Value is the sum of all stocks in the Dow um, based on the price-weighted uh, uh, price-weighted method divided by the number of stocks divided by the divisor. So in September 2019, for example, the Dow divisor was 0.147. So using our example of Dow totaling 4,582.9, assuming the divisor was 0.147, then the equation becomes 4,582 you know, dollars divided by 0.147, which works out to be about 31,176 points. But we know the Dow isn't that, which means the divisor has changed, and they do change it to reflect the current conditions. I think now it sits closer to 0.15. So that's an index divisor. And that's about it for this episode. So we've covered the various types of index weightings and also what is an index divisor. Now, if you're new to the channel, please make sure you give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or any podcasting app you may be using. It really does help promote the podcast so more people can download it and listen to it. It really helps the podcasting algorithm so others can find me. And if you really want, leave a review too. As promised, reviews will be read in an episode. And in that theme, here is a review I found from Ronald Michael from CastBox. He writes, hey, Dev, love the podcast. I have a lot to learn from this. If anyone were to contact you from, for some information, how can they reach you? Thanks, Ronald. You can reach me via the Dev Raga personal finance page. That's the primary mode of contact for me. It's much easier for me to be able to track my messages that way. And I get loads of messages regularly and I try and get to all of them as promptly as I can. Sometimes, though, it does take a couple of days to respond as the popularity of this channel grows. Now, remember to like the Devraga Facebook page. Shout out to questions and comments and topic suggestions. So please do contact me. I really appreciate that. When you do ask me a question, I do learn from that question as well. Share this channel with family and friends and hit that subscribe button. Apple Podcast, Anchor, CastBox and all the major applications host this channel. And remember, always pay yourself first. Take 20% of after-tax income and put it aside. And if you are that intern that asked me this question earlier in this podcast, then you must do that when you get your first paycheck, which should be either this week or next week. So when you get that, take 20% and put it aside straight away. You don't have to straight away invest it, but you need to get into the habit of paying yourself first. And I hope this episode provides some insight into the types of indices and how they are weighted. This is Devraga Personal Finance, episode 104. And as always, please make sure you stay safe. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.